Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well. Um, but I have a question for you, Yoel, which is, um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of The Big Lebowski. I, I think you're a, you're a, maybe not a huge fan, you're a fan, though. So my question is, in the pantheon of Lebowski, uh, what character are you? That's a great question. I would love to be Jackie Treehorn. Um, but I, I worry I'm really Donnie. Uh, you're, you're worried you're really Donnie. Okay. Yeah, that's my secret fear. Uh, that's funny because it's funny for for a few reasons. Um, well, first is I'm, I was trying to think myself what you would be. I don't know. I think, you know, maybe Uli Kunkel, uh, you know, one of the Nihilists. Yeah, thank you. No, that's good. That would be my second choice. Yeah, floating in a pool with an empty bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean, that's, that's I mean, you know, you like whiskey. You wouldn't be drinking most of it, but... Uh, that's that's really my ideal lifestyle. You know, if I could afford it, that is what I would be doing. Excellent. Um, so I ask because, and I think you might have seen this image, but uh, so it was my birthday this past weekend, and and, and friends of the show, uh, Paul Bloom and Christina Starmans, uh, were kind enough to uh, to buy me a gift, and they know that I love the Big Lebowski, and it's a very common gift for me to receive some something Big Lebowski related, and they did this amazing Photoshop. Of one of a classic image from the show, uh, from the movie, and they put my face on Donnie's body, <laughs> and I was like, "Really, I'm Donnie? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I thought it was Jesus. I really did think I was Jesus Quintana, <laughs> but I was Donnie. So uh, your fear was what I realized uh, yeah. the other day. Yeah, the truth hurts, man." Um, so, hey, do you uh, want to introduce our special guest today? Yes, yes, I do. I know we've been brutally, uh, you know, blabbering away, but we, and we've got a special guest uh, waiting patiently uh, for us. We have uh, none other than uh, Evan Thompson uh, joining us. Evan is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Um, Evan received his, his BA or AB from Amherst College in 1983 in Asian Studies and his PhD in philosophy from the University of Toronto. Um, he was also a professor uh, here at the University of Toronto from uh, 2005 to 2013, um, and also held a Canada Research Chair in Cognitive Science and the Embodied Mind at York University uh, from 2002 to 2005. So it's been quite a, a good amount of time in Toronto. Um, he works on the nature of the mind, the self, and human experience. His work combines cognitive science, philosophy of mind, phenomenology, and cross-cultural philosophy, especially Asian philosophical traditions. He's, a, he's an author of numerous books. Um, I, I won't mention them all, um, but I'll just uh, I name a couple of them. Uh, he, he's got one book called Walking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy. Uh, another book called Mind and Life, Biology, Phenomenology, and the Sciences of the Mind. And most recently, he wrote a book uh, provocatively called Why I Am Not a Buddhist. Um, and then finally, uh, Evan uh, is an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. So welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we kind of dive in, and uh, I mean, we're I, I really hoping to kind of uh, to ex expose you to our listeners, <laughs> um, so to speak. Um, and I think you, I think our listeners will be very interested in in, in all the things that you study. Uh, but before doing that, uh, of course, uh, a big part of our show is uh, drinking beer. So, uh, are you uh, are you drinking a beer with us uh, this evening, Evan? I am definitely drinking a beer with you. So, this is a local Vancouver beer. It's from a brewery, brewery called Thirty Three Acres of Life, 
there on uh, West 8th Avenue in Vancouver. And I am drinking a beer they call California Common. And what it is is it's a uh, California uh, steam ale. Um, you can't call a beer steam ale anymore, evidently, because Anchor Steam Ale, I think, uh, trademarked or copyrighted it or, or something like that. But it's an old, going back to the 19th century, um, California style of ale making. And it's a lighter ale. And uh, it's kind of humid and, and uh, warm for Vancouver here. It's not really warm by East Coast standards or Toronto standards, but um, it's kind of warm for us. So it's a, it's a, nice, uh, it's a nice summer beer. Excellent. And Yoel? Oh, I, I'm once again flouting the rules. So I felt more like drinking whiskey. So I have this uh, Old Forester 1920. This is a bourbon. Um, and it's the Prohibition style which I think just means it's 115 proof. Um, so this may get interesting. Uh, it's very tasty. I've had it before, and I tend to not know when to stop with it. So uh, this should be fun. Yeah, you guys didn't tell me whiskey was an option. I just assumed it had to be beer. So You know what? He's, I don't want to say that Mickey is a fascist about the beer, but he's, he's <laughs> a little tiny bit of a fascist. But after the break, if you want to switch to whiskey, I'm 100% cool with that. Okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> we'll see how I hold up. So I'm drinking uh, something by uh, Flying Monkeys Brewery, which is actually I had the pr- uh, privilege of visiting uh, back in, in the fall. Um, it's in, I believe it's in Barrie, Ontario. And this is, uh, strangely titled, uh, Cryohopped Psycho Thrill Seekers Double IPA. Um, so it's got this funky label. It's very, very strong, 8%. Uh, it's super tasty, really, you know, quite, uh, yeah, you can definitely taste the hops. So, uh, quite yummy. Uh, so, uh, cheers, everyone. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, um, I say we, we get right into it and, um, you know, in, in, in doing the research uh, on you and, and, and your work, Evan, um, I, I, you know, it, you kind of hint at, you know, having a, uh, a bit of unusual upbringing. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if we could, uh, we could start there. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, uh, about your upbringing. Where, from your website, I learned, for example, that you were, you were homeschooled as a child um, and as a teen in uh, something called the Linz Farm Association. And I, here's a quotation from the website. Um, an association of scientists, artists, scholars, and contemplatives devoted to the study and realization of a new planetary culture. Right, right. Um, yeah, so this was in the 1970s. Uh, my dad uh, was a full professor at York University. He taught humanities. He decided to quit his tenured position and start up an alternative educational institute that was also a commune, that is, the, the staff and um, some of the faculty uh, all lived together. And uh, his idea was to bring together uh, scientists and artists and activists and um, philosophers and, you could say, religious spiritual teachers um, and the reason he did this is he felt that the universities weren't really providing the kind of learning that he thought was necessary in what he and his generation at the time uh, very much perceived as a kind of civilizational crisis. And it w- in a way, it was kind of an early version of everything that we're talking about now, you know, with climate change and with political instability and, um, you know, the, the need to figure out uh, other, other ways of, of being on the planet that aren't based on, you know, um, such intense resource extraction that, that alters, alters the human habitat. So this was a kind of early 1970s version of that. And as I say, it was a community, um, a commune. 
And so the kids who lived there were homeschooled there. I was the oldest kid. And uh, so I kind of grew up both being homeschooled, being taught by people who lived at the community, and then just being exposed to all sorts of ideas from all across different disciplines in the form of people who would come and visit and the conferences that my dad organized. Um, so I met, you know, thinkers like Gregory Bateson, the anthropologist and cybernetic systems theorist. Um, met, you know, religious teachers from from Buddhism, from Christianity, from Sufism. So it was a very kind of eclectic uh, environment. And um, it was in that context that I also met someone who I then went on to work with later on when I was when I was an adult, Francisco Varela, who was a neuroscientist, cognitive scientist. Uh, he lived with us as a scholar in residence. Um, so it was very formative for me. I mean, it kind of I was always you know one of those kids who was kind of interested in I don't know intellectual, philosophical, scientific kinds of questions. Um, and so being in that environment really brought that out a lot and was very formative for me because. I was just exposed to a lot of different ideas and, and saw people make connections across different fields and different disciplines, and that really stayed with me as something that I always wanted to do in my work. I've been, I've been very formed by that, so I like to work with, collaboratively with scientists. Um, you know, I have degrees in different disciplines. My undergrad degree was in Asian studies and grad, grad degree in philosophy, but I did a lot of work in cognitive science. So I think it's because of that upbringing that I kind of went on to do the kind of work that I do, this interdisciplinary, let's call it work. Yeah. Is there, do you have, I mean, given what you described and uh, what your father saw as this kind of crisis at the time, and you, you just mentioned there's a, perhaps a similar crisis. I mean, I, I think we feel it especially keenly now, um, this moment. Uh, do you ever have uh, a desire to do something uh, as trailblazing as, as your father, <laughs> leaving the academy? I... I don't think I have the desire to do that. I mean, he, he was able to do that for several reasons. One, um, he, he, he was a very energetic, uh, he's still alive, but I mean, he's, he's older and retired now. So at that point in his life, in his early thirties, he was, he was very energetic. Um, and in a way that was, was, how would you put it? Institution building and, um, the times were very different. Uh, so he was able to fundraise a lot of money from different kinds of foundations to start this uh, Lindisfarne Association. So, so there was a lot of resources and, you know, kind of counterculture movements that would support doing something like this outside of, you know, academe or, or, um, or cor the corporate world or something like that. And he was very talented at that. I don't think I'm kind of talented at that sort of thing. So, um, I like having connections to institutions that are outside of academe that do, you know, you might say para-academic or other kinds of work. That That's really important to me. But I don't see myself as having the talent that's really required to to actually create something like that. It's 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 incredibly uh, time-consuming and demanding. And, and, and I think our culture right now, it's harder to do than it was in the early 1970s. Things are, are in a way, or at least this is my perception, maybe this wouldn't be true if you're a young person. But for me in my 50s, you know, it seems to me that things have a certain fixity that they didn't really have in that very expansive time. Um, so, yeah, so that's, those are the reasons why I'm not so tempted to do what my dad did. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel like this is this background pushed you towards philosophy at all? Like there wasn't your, obviously your undergrad major, right? Like something led you to decide this is what I want to do in graduate study. Like what, what was that? 
Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to actually. I was always interested in philosophical things, but it took me a while to figure out that that's actually was the best path for me to do in graduate school. So um, when I was when I was a, a teenager, before I went away to university, what I was really interested in was, uh, and that's what led me to major in Asian studies. I was interested in Chinese language and Chinese history and, and Chinese philosophy. Um, so there was a philosophical element there, and that had come from like the typical 1970s, you know, like kung fu on the TV you know the tv shows and then i met a lot of um asian buddhist teachers through through lindisfarne um but i was always kind of fascinated by the chinese language and chinese history so i went and majored in asian studies but in the course of just studying as an undergraduate you know i took a bunch of philosophy courses my dad was a philosophy major as an undergraduate so like there were always philosophy books around in the home library um the kind of discussions that happened in the Lindisfarne Association were really basically philosophical, even if they spanned, you know, politics and science and art, like the overarching connective sort of framework was, you could say, philosophical. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do in grad school, um, you know, it was either go on in Asian studies, but that was like a nine, 10 year PhD and more heavy language study. And I had kind of burned out on studying languages as an undergrad, had done a bunch of languages, or I could go into religion if I wanted to say study Buddhism, but I didn't really, it wasn't religion in that sense that interested me as an academic field, or I could do comp lit, but literature wasn't quite the right focus. And I had done a bunch of philosophy as an undergraduate, and I thought, well, philosophy actually is probably really at the end of the day what I'm interested in. And then when I went, so, so that's what I wound up doing. And then when I went into um, graduate school at the University of Toronto in philosophy, um, very early on, I got interested in cognitive science because it was in the you know the 1980s and it was sort of the heyday of people like Jerry Fodor and Daniel Dennett and Douglas Hofstetter, all these really you know fantastic formative writers and thinkers. That was like what philosophy was excited about, or you know one major thing philosophy was excited about. And I got very interested in that, and it connected to um, things I had already been exposed to and had been thinking about at Lindisfarne through people like Gregory Bateson and Francisco Varela and, you know, a lot of different kinds of scientists um, poured through Lindisfarne. So even though I didn't have like a formal undergraduate scientific education, um, I very quickly got interested in cognitive science. And then because I knew Francisco Varela, had the opportunity to go work with him when he was setting up his lab in Paris. And I, I kind of learned cognitive science from the inside of basically being in a lab you know, I finished my coursework at University of Toronto. I went to, to Paris to write my dissertation. I wrote my dissertation on color perception and the philosophy of perception. Francisco Varela was then doing research on the neurophysiology of color vision in birds. So, like, I could be in a lab. I could, like, actually see what scientists do, learn how they think, learn how they, you know, how they frame the problems they're interested in, the questions they raise. Even though I had no formal scientific training other than, you know, what I got through homeschooling and a few courses at Amherst. So that was, you know, that was fantastic. And especially in a field where philosophy was really an integral part, you could say, of, of the cognitive scientific endeavor. So that's kind of how that came about. I didn't start out with that in my sights at all. It, it just kind of was this meandering path that, that led me down that way. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know... Um about the, the the field of uh, an area in philosophy called phenomenology. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with um, aspects of, of philosophy of science, maybe some existential philosophy. Um, I'm not sure how familiar uh, 
our listeners are with phenomenology. So I wonder if you can uh, tell us what it is, um, how it in, you know informs your work and, and the work of others. Yeah. So so phenomenology, in the sense in which I'm using the word now, is a movement of let's say. Um, well, late 19th century, but then really took off in the 20th century, philosophy that originated with a German philosopher named Edmund Husserl, who was uh, also a mathematician. And he was interested in understanding the structure of consciousness and how we experience the world in the way that we do because of the kinds of um, mental uh, processes that present it to us as, as being a certain way. So he was very interested in the structure of perception, the, um, how, we're, how we are aware of time, how we experience our bodies, bodily, uh, bodily awareness, bodily subjectivity. And he wrote many uh, works on these themes. His writings are they're, – they're, they're difficult. He's not a very good writer. Um, but he was very influential for another generation of philosophers like Merleau-Ponty in France and Jean-Paul Sartre who took up his ideas and enriched them through, you could say, giving them, in the case of Sartre uh, and also in Merleau-Ponty, a kind of existentialist flavor, so very much concerned with human experience as it is in a particular context where it has to um, it, it has to make itself, it has to, it has to construct itself in interaction with the world, in community, in the self-other relationship. And so, you know, writers like Meloponti and Sartre write, write a great deal about this. And so it became a kind of movement and style of doing philosophy. And the reason it's important for me is, well, there are lots of different reasons, but, but, but the reason it's important in relationship to, say, cognitive science is because the phenomenologists were very concerned to describe and understand how we actually experience perception, how we experience time, how we experience our bodies. And their discussions are very illuminating in bringing out areas that cognitive science is interested in, but that cognitive science sometimes sort of either tries to sort of move to the side or slide over too quickly because, I mean, in a typical cognitive science experiment, you run a bunch of trials, you average over the trials, you average over the subjects, so you're getting, you know, kind of large principal features um, across a given population. But in doing that, you're wiping out what the phenomenologists are actually interested in, which is the sort of subtle variability of how people actually experience uh, in the moment their embodiment or the sense of how time is flowing or the duration of the moment or something like that. And so their descriptions are, are very rich. And once cognitive science took a turn in being interested specifically in consciousness, then um, right away it just opens up exactly what you know the phenomenologists had been talking about for you know for, for decades really. Um, so that's that's in a nutshell what the the movement of phenomenology is, and um, a little bit about how it relates to cognitive science. Yeah. So um, I actually don't know a ton about what the state-of-the-art cognitive science approaches to consciousness are. Like, what are the questions that people are interested in? How are they studying them? Can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what the field is doing? I would say that one of the big developments has come about through the increasing sophistication of the technologies we have 
to look at what's going on in the brain, the human brain, in um, in non-invasive ways. And given those kinds of electrophysiological and neuroimaging tools, scientists, neuroscientists have 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 been asking questions. I mean, in some ways, these are very traditional questions, but the way to ask them with these sort of you know technological uh, windows onto the human brain is new. Are asking questions like, um, what's the relationship between awareness and attention? So, is it the case, for example, that um, what you are consciously aware of is strictly just what you happen to be selectively attending to, or is it rather that, um, as some people like to put it, that um, awareness is richer and overflows the contents of selective attention and the the contents of, say, working memory, and if it's the case that, say, consciousness is strictly a function of attention, well, how would we show that in terms of the architecture of the brain for attentional systems and working memory and so on? Or if it's the case that experience is richer or overflows attention, well, how would we show that in terms of what's going on in the brain? So, I mean, that to put, like, in very general terms, that's one kind of question that people are interested in. Um, another thing that people are interested in, and this is actually something Francisco Varela was a pioneer on, um, is whether perception is, you know, perception seems smooth and continuous to us, but is it rather actually a kind of discrete process where you have this kind of chunking of things within, um, integrated moments and discontinuities between them rather than a, rather than a smooth continuity. And so people are interested in looking at um, brain rhythms associated with perception as um, as processes that that might um, that might sort of frame the the content of perception as being here's the content of what I see now here's the content of what I see now given you know the the sort of up and down troughs of a, uh, of the wave in you know um, in the alpha rhythm or or theta rhythm or something like that so those are those are the kinds of things that that people are interested in um, I mean there are many others but those are just some examples right you know um, I despite not knowing a lot about this area I find this just incredibly fascinating because it it i think it touches on pretty quickly you know how do we know what we are we have this experience of the self right um but it, we also have uh, it just things that appear to us to be happening some of which are out in the world but some of which are in our heads right so you might be like i said to myself i got to go out and get milk later like that what does that even mean right um so and 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 uh, i've been thinking a bit Lately, uh, just inspired by some like random blog posts I read and stuff, is it, you know, like you and I have this theory of like, yeah, when there's a voice in our own head, that's us, you know, our thoughts, um, whatever that means. That's a theory you can have. Like other cultures may have had very different theories about what those voices were, right? And I'm sure this is like stuff that, that you're familiar with. Um, so I, uh, I see that Mickey here, um, has put in the show notes that you actually co-edited a book on the question of whether the self exists or not. And uh, that in this book, you brought in perspectives from both Western and Eastern philosophy. So that's obviously a huge topic to cover. We're not going to be able to cover that in the podcast, but I wonder if you'd give our listeners just an overview of like what these different perspectives say and maybe where you personally fall on this 
question. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Um, yeah, so the, you know, the nature of the self, what is the self, is there a self, is the self an illusion, all these kinds of questions are really um, central to my interest and things I've, I've written about. In fact, the book um, Waking, Dreaming, Being is, is really in a way about that. So um, in that book, what I do is I look at how our sense of self shifts across different kinds of waking states like, you know, absorbed, skillful perception and action versus um, mind wandering and daydreaming and, you know, reminiscences where you have some sense of an autobiographical self and an image of self that you're, um, that you're recalling or projecting into the past or, you know, anticipatory um, future oriented senses of self that's, you know, mental time travel as, as Tulving called it. Um, so the different ways that the sense of self shifts in, in waking, but then what happens to the sense of self as you get drowsy, start to fall asleep, have sleep onset or hypnagogic experiences, then in dreams, the sense of self reemerges. In a lucid dream, when you have a dream and know you're dreaming, the sense of self changes again because you have a sense of self in the dream, but you can also sort of see yourself, as it were, in the dream, know you're dreaming. So this is really what, what Waking Dreaming Being is about. And the example that you used uh, a few minutes ago of, you know, talking to yourself, I think is a great example because, you know, if you, if you think about that for a minute, you know, who are you talking to? Like, you hear this voice inside your head. Whose voice is it and who is it speaking to, right? It's, 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 it's your voice in a sense, but in a sense, it's actually not, right? Because you hear it as, you know, externalized, obviously, though, internalized, um, let's say, you know, speech imagery. And it's addressing someone, but, you know, the, the address, the addressee and the addresser are in, sen- in a sense the same, but they're different. A bit like when you are now remembering something, you know, you are the one remembering, but you have an image of yourself that you're bringing up from the past who isn't you anymore, but is you in another sense. So these kinds of selfing, as you might call them, processes, that's exactly what um, Waking Dreaming Being is about. And, and basically, like to summarize the, the view I come to in that book, is I think of the self as a process of what I call self-making. And um, the idea is that um, the self is a kind of ongoing construction. And so it's not quite right to say it's an illusion, actually, because just because something is constructed doesn't mean it's illusory. In fact, it could be constructed and actually serve some very useful purposes. There may be illusory aspects of it, of course, things that look one way that aren't exactly how it is if you press them. But um, it's an ongoing construction, and the analogy I use is that um, it's like a dance. You know, a dance isn't a thing. It's a process that you enact, and the self isn't a thing. It's a process that you enact through self-making. And self-making has different, you might say, dimensions or levels. There's, there's the basic kind of embodied sense of, uh, of self that, that comes from having, you know, interoception and proprioception, the very basic, you know, bodily sentience. And then there's the sense of self, of hearing yourself speak inside your head, and that's social, right? I mean, we know from developmental psychology that that kind of um, sort of metacognitive inner talking depends on your experience of coming to be the object of somebody else's attention and er- internalizing their their perception of you into yourself, sort of Vygotsky, kind of Tomasello, uh, uh, 
I'm uh, forgetting, uh, Mead, Vygotsky, Mead, Tomasello kind of line of, of an internalized sense of self that really starts out socially. Um, so that's a different kind of self-making, this, this sort of social self, self-making and self-construction. So that's what Waking Dreaming Being is about. And what I do in that book is I, is I take those ideas and I weave back and forth between cognitive neuroscience, philosophy, and Indian philosophical traditions. Indeed, the term self-making comes from... Uh, Sanskrit philosophical traditions, ahamkara, is literally means self-making, and it's the idea that our that our sense of I, me, mine, of ego is a kind of construct. And so I use Indian philosophical ideas um, about that and about waking and dreaming and sleeping, and I weave them together with what we know about these things from from neuroscience and and philosophy. So that's that's um, really one of the sort of central main things that I work on. Um- Maybe we'll get to this, you know, uh, after the break, but um, I can't help but ask it now. Um, your view, th- this view of the self uh, as being constructed, um, it seems counter to maybe my lay understanding of Buddhism um, or the understanding that I get from, like, listening to Sam Harris, um, where, you know, he goes on and on about how the self is an illusion. It's constantly an illusion. Um, and, you know, if you listen to those kinds of things, you're like, well, obviously it's an illusion. But then, like, our experience is like, what do you mean it's an illusion? I, I am here. I'm real. Um, so my question to you is, um, is your view, uh, you know, uh, does it contradict uh, kind of traditional views of Buddhism? Or is it contradicting, uh, like, modern takes of uh, uh, Buddhism? Right. That's a great question. So there's a lot of different things to say in response to that. So first thing to say is um, I have a chapter on that very question in my latest book, which is the Why I'm Not a Buddhist book. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter called No Self, um, question mark, not so fast. So this deals exactly with this topic. So I would say that my view is not either a traditional Buddhist view or a modern Buddhist view, though it's very much informed, I think, by certain kinds of Buddhist insights. But most Buddhists would not, um, would not be inclined to put it the way that I do. Um, and the way that I put it is the self isn't an illusion, it's a construction, and you have to understand that the reasoning for that involves seeing the self not as a thing, but as a process. So when someone like Sam Harris or my friend Thomas Metzinger um, comes along and says, there is no self, the self is an illusion, what they have in mind as the, as the, as the referent of the word self, what a self would have to be if there really were one, is something very much like a thing that is a whole that is present in each moment over time and that would be the essence of you. And some people in philosophy historically have thought of the self as that kind of thing, but not everybody thinks of it that way. And certainly, you know, the tradition of psychology from William James through Mead and Vygotsky and Tomasello would would not think of the self that way. Um, So they're starting out with a kind of, I would say, tendentious and limited concept of self and then they're saying, oh, there is no such self. That self is an illusion. And moreover, and this is – Tomas Metzinger is, 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 is actually quite subtle on this because he, he's, he does say, well, there is no self in the sense of a thing, but there is a phenomenal self and it's a process. So he, what he means by that is there's a, 
there's an exper- an ongoing experience of selfhood and it's a process. So he's 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 um, he's more precise. But but Sam Harris has these, to my mind, very very um, unargued for and tendentious descriptions of what the experience of self is. You know, he says it seems like you're located in your head and looking out through your eyes, and that you're always the same in every moment, and that there is this essential you and I mean, you could work yourself into a frame of mind where you think about the self like that, but I would say that's not our ordinary mode of self-experience at all. Our ordinary mode of self-experience is we're embodied beings, engaged in tasks, caught up in the world. That's, a, that's to go back to the earlier thing we were talking about, that's how an existential phenomenologist like you know, Merleau-Ponty or Husserl in some moments would, would describe it, is we are first and foremost you know, living bodily subjects who engage in meaningful tasks and projects in the world and we don't experience ourselves in this kind of intellectual essentialized way that um that Sam Harris describes so that he can then say it's an illusion so my view is um is different from theirs for those reasons and just to come back to the point about buddhism i would say that when i you know when i present this view it's it's got elements definitely that are owing to buddhist insights but i see it in terms of say the history of Asian philosophical discussions as also involving insights from people who were intellectually, you know, in debate with Buddhists. So certain, you know, what we today would call Hindu thinkers um, articulate ideas that also were very much part of the view that I'm that I'm uh, advocating or, or arguing for. So it's not a, it's not a strictly Buddhist view. And and indeed, that's like one of the things I I say and why I'm not a Buddhist is that Buddhism is very important for me, but as part of a larger conversation, not as you know a strict thing to sort of take out of context and to identify with, but to see it as you know throughout its its history up to the present moment, engaged in this dialogue and dialectic with other traditions, and that's where the richness is is in, the, is in that kind of dialectic of of conversation with 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 other traditions including now with you know western philosophy and western science okay so i i wonder if so i i i definitely definitely want to talk more about about your new book um uh but i wonder uh you all if uh, we should take a bit of a break uh refresh our beers and uh and then we'll come back that's right switching to whiskey at this point is an option i'll just put that on the table Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter. Uh, we we both check the show account that is, which is at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us or at mention us if you'd rather email us. The show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can go there. You can check out our current episode, our entire back catalog, and you can drop us a line there as well if that's your preference. We actually get a lot of people emailing us through the web form on the website for some reason. So uh, yeah, that goes to us too. Feel free to do that if that's better for you. Uh, If you're enjoying the show, please do uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It just helps other people discover the show. Mickey, am I leaving anything out? 
Uh, no, uh, just keep on, uh, you know, uh, sending us emails, uh, communicating with us. Um, we have, uh, it's kind of funny because we, ha- we we have these relationships sometimes with some of our listeners who email us repeatedly. Um, and it's kind of fun. Uh, so, you know, feel free to, to drop us a line. We, we, we were delighted by to, to hear from you. So uh, keep doing that. Absolutely. Uh, so let's see. We need to talk about what we're drinking. I'm easy. I'm still drinking the same bourbon that I was before, but maybe you guys have changed up your beers. I'm still drinking the same. I have opened a second bottle of the uh, of the California Common or the or the traditional steam ale from California, although it's brewed in Vancouver, and uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So it's uh, it was a good choice. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I've got uh, I've I've got something new. It's from a, a brewer I've not tried yet before uh, in in Toronto area. It's called the Brox. Street uh, Brewing Company. Um, it's a strawberry blonde, which I just like that. Uh, <laughs> I like that name. Um, and their tagline is the most refreshing street in Canada, uh, which is these are strong words. Um, I will be the I'll be the judge of that. We're going to circle back <laughs> to you, Vicky, and see whether that is true. All right. Cheers, you guys. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So uh, I uh, noticed that uh, a few times you mentioned in passing this idea of embodied cognition, which I guess if I were to find that very broadly, I would say, look, uh, that just refers to the idea that we're not like kind of brains floating around in an ether. We're agents that have bodies that interact with the world, and that affects the way that we um, think, uh, perceive, process information, and so on. Um, within psychology, it's uh, kind of taken on uh, something I would say of a negative connotation um, because some specific studies in psychology that have tried to apply this idea in various ways um, have turned out to be empirically a bit shaky, right? Uh, so I don't actually know that this study really exists. I'm pretty sure it does, but it's sort of the, the archetypal example of like an embodied cognition psychology study where it's like you stand on a wobbly box or not and then you're asked to like rate your relationship quality and you think that your relationship is shakier if you're on the shaky box right like i i have no idea whether that's an actual study um if it is and i misdescribed it apologies to the authors but that's the sort of thing where these days i think a lot of social psychologists would be oh i wouldn't put money on that being empirically solid so my question is say those studies are not, does that undermine the enterprise? Is it just kind of a misunderstanding of um, the idea that social psychologists have had that have caused them to like test ideas that are, that are actually wrong or what's going on there? Right. Right. Okay. Good question. So, um, so the issue here really is around the word embodied and um, what, the term embodied cognition means. And it me- it means, of course, you know, different things depending on the context. But the term as I use it, and as as it was originally uh, brought into cognitive science in the 80s and then the 90s, was a way of talking about an approach. It, it, it was a term for talking about an approach to cognition that saw cognition as not something that happens in the head, but rather is a relational process between the whole active agent and the environment. And different people articulated that idea in different ways, but it was 
in the context of a critique of a kind of classical computationalist model of cognition as symbol processing in the head, or some of the connectionist models, which basically said, okay, well, we don't really need symbols in the classical sense. We can do it with um, with distributed parallel processing patterns of activity, but it's fundamentally uh, something that is occurring in the head, in the brain. And so embodied cognition, say specifically in the case of perception, meant perception is fundamentally active, perceptually guided activity, and it involves, constitutively involves, eye movements and head movements and whole body movements, and it involves an implicit skillful knowledge of how things change in their looks depending on how you move. So that was, that was in very general terms, kind of the original idea. Now, when it's used in social psychology or, let's say, um, in areas where people claim that um, what you perceive is altered by what your body is doing in the, in the kind of sense that you just gave by way of example, um, that's actually not really what embodied cognition meant in the sense that I, that I first described it. Um, because the embodied cognition view really was more about... Um, be, because the issue there <clears throat> is whether... I mean, the issue there is partly about, like, what is perception? What is its content? And um, what belongs to perception as a sort of proper constitutive part and what causally affects it? And those kinds of studies, like, you know, the power pose study and some some other things that, you know, have had some questions raised about their replicability, um, those those were, were very much um, not concerned with the fine details and architecture of how the visual system works in terms of like visual motor activity as actually being constitutive of the perceptual process. So for example, um, work by Mark Wexler in Paris has shown that, um, that perceivers will judge depth differently depending on, when they're, on whether they're actively moving in relationship to a stimulus or whether the same optic flow is being presented to them as if they were moving but they're passive. They actually make different depth judgments. So that's the kind of study that I think provides evidence for the idea that perception is embodied in the sense that what belongs to the perceptual process is an active motor process and not just a kind of you know passive um, stimulus process. And the social psychology work on embodied, percep- on embodied cognition is, is, is really just not addressing those kind of more fundamental architectural um, issues. So, you know, whether the social psychology stuff, you know, stands or falls, you know, replicates or doesn't replicate, um, you know, that's a question. But to me, it doesn't really touch on the fundamental commitments of the, of the embodied cognition approach. I would also say that there are, there, are, there are different ways of being an embodied cognition theorist. And the version of embodied cognition that I argue for in my work is we use the term inactive to describe it. So the word inactive is the idea that perception and cognition more generally isn't a process where you um, internally represent the way things are independently and externally. Rather, you engage in an ongoing activity that creates 
the frame of relevance and meaning through how you in and through how you how you interact with the world. And so we use the term, and, and this actually is Francisco Varela's term, coming back to an earlier point of the conversation, the idea is that an action is a kind of sense-making, it's a kind of bringing forth of relevance or meaning, and it's not um, cognition as a, as, a, as a kind of internal, faithful representation of an independent, of an independent external world. And not all embodied cognition theorists would put it that way, so that's a more, you know, kind of substantial commitment on the part of, on the part of the um, inactive theorist. And that's really the version of embodied cognition that, that I work with in, in my own work. Right. So the, um, the first example that you gave of you respond to the perception of motion differently, depending on whether you're moving or, or not, it's, it's super interesting because it's not the definition of embodied cognition that I'm familiar with from social psych at all which has much more this like metaphorical focus and you know what your body is doing affects your thinking in in different ways and so on and it, what this seems like to me um is more how do you solve the engineering challenges of you have this input that is being affected by the fact that the thing that's perceiving it is moving around in the world maybe the things in the world are in motion as well like how do you put all that together into a stable perception that the organism can act on Exactly. No, that I mean that was really the fundamental question that was motivating um, the embodied cognition, or one of the fundamental questions that was motivating the embodied cognition approach as it got formed in the '80s and '90s, and as it continues in that line of work today. It's it, it's as you say, it's a kind of engineering question. It's you know what is required for you to have an intelligent, adaptive, flexible cognitive agent, and. Um, the classical view is very much, well, it's a matter of what you can computationally process in the head based on what you can recover and extract from signals from the environment. And the whole evolution of the embodied cognition approach is to say, no, you need to have a certain bodily architecture um, that already shapes um, what's available to perception and attention in a certain way. It kind of carves out a space of meaningfulness and you you act in the world on the basis of that and meaning arises and emerges out of that. Um, I wonder, uh, sorry, I can make sure I understand uh, uh, the, the limits of this approach. It sounds like you're, you're, you're honing in really on perception and, and, and action. Uh, so kind of grasping at things that are, you might be moving, it might be moving. Um, you know, and I think social psychologists have, you know, have extended it, you know, as you all mentioned, you know, metaphorically, um, and in other directions as well. So from your perspective, is it, do you think it's, you know, uh, embodied cognition is strictly perceptual and motor or are there other offshoots? Yeah. So that's, a, I think that's a, an interesting, an interesting, and you might say in a way, open question. So embodied cognition in the sense in which I'm, I'm using the term embodied really was formulated first with regard to perception and action. And then if you say, well, what about thought or what about cognition? Then what you see are some people who develop the embodied cognition line, like Larry Barsaloo is a good example of this, in the direction of what they call grounded cognition. So, you know, Larry argues and um, other figures in this area would be like Lisa Feldman Barrett. They argue cognition when it's thought, is 
working with um, perception action schemas or it's kind of emulating perception action routines rather than manipulating amodal symbols in a central cognitive architecture that are fundamentally different in their format from what perception and action provide. And so you could say that the, the grounded cognition, the idea that cognition is grounded in perception action symbol structures or perception action schema, um, that version of embodied cognition, I think, is... I mean, I, I think it's, it's been developed and articulated in very rich ways theoretically and experimentally, but, you know, it's an open, it's an open area of debate in cognitive science. So some people will say, no, um, the grounded cognition, grounded embodied cognition approach um, isn't going to be able to handle something like, I don't know, mathematical cognition, for example, or, or, um, or logic. And then, you know, you have an interesting debate about, well, what's required in the cognitive architecture for something like, you know, very abstract mathematical or logical reasoning. And I see that as still, a, as still an open question. So that has to do with, it in a way, um, you might say it has to do with the scope of the embodied cognition program, except that I don't think it's going to work, ultimately, to try to be kind of um, embodied cognition about everything and then sort of just stick a sort of, you know, disembodied cognitive module for logic and mathematics into the system. I mean, it just, like, that, that seems to me like an unlikely way that things are going to work. And the more that we learn about the brain, again, some people would disagree with this, but this is very much my reading of the situation, is that the brain is, um, is not a modular system in the sense of module that the, that the, the, the classical, as it were, disembodied view uh, subscribes to. So on that view, you know, you have discrete, distinct, encapsulated modules that are special purpose dedicated mechanisms, whereas the embodied view is no, you have, um, you have general purpose uh, flexible, attentional memory learning systems, and they are strongly scaffolded and supported by the body and by culture and the environment. And um, that would be a way in which you would, I suppose, put together you know, what some people call an embedded view with an embodied view. Very much, again, in conflict with the, with the idea that the brain is um, comprised of these you know, discrete special purpose mechanisms. Now, um, this is debated neuroscience, but my view, my reading of the neuroscience evidence is that the more we learn about the brain, we more, the more we see that, it, that brain activity is highly flexible, dynamical, context-dependent, and it's not parcelated out into these, into these kinds of uh, special purpose dedicated modules. Maybe, maybe there, you know, there are some systems that get tuned up to be special purpose as a result of um, learning and cultural scaffolding um, with a strong, you know, sort of biological predisposition like face perception or something like that. But um, most of it is, you know, is, is, is going to be dynamical and context dependent. Okay, so let's, uh, I think we should shift gears a little bit. Um, and let's get back to, uh, to Buddhism and uh, contemplative uh, practices. Um, so I wonder, uh, Evan, um, what, you, what, you, what you think of uh, the way the West has changed in terms of its relationship with contemplative practices, especially Buddhism, in your lifetime. So, I mean, it seems like you were, maybe since birth or at least since early childhood, um, you were exposed to, to these ideas at a very, very early age, and you've kind of, you know, 
clearly the West has, has, has adopted, many people have adopted these practices. Mindfulness is, is a common word now. There's even a term, mindfulness. Um, so yeah, well, what's your view on, uh, well, how, well, maybe first, how, what changes have you noticed? You know, how, you have, you know, from your perspective, how, how have things changed in terms of the relationship uh, towards contemplative practices? Well, there's no, there's no question that, you know, today, um, the idea that one, you could practice meditation and it wouldn't be weird. And two, you could run a scientific study, either a basic cognitive study or, you know, a clinical intervention study looking at, you know, some aspect of meditative practice. Like this is now completely acceptable. And it, it wasn't 20 years ago. It would have been seen as kind of weird 20 years ago. Um, certainly when I was growing up, you know, the idea, as part of the commune I grew up in, we had, you know, we had a daily group meditation. We had, you know, we would meditate together from 5.30 to 6, all in one room before we would have dinner. And um, that would have been seen as weird by the lights of, you know, the, the conventional society of 1975 or 76. So, I mean, there's no question that, you know, things have really changed uh, in, in, in that way. Um, some of the changes, I think, are really good in that, there, there are aspects of these practices that are now widely available and have been really beneficial in helping people like mindfulness-based stress reduction came about through, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's um, wanting to find methods to help people who experience chronic pain, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and, um, and other forms for dealing with, with depression um, so there's, there's no question in my mind that, that these kind of like secularized developments of aspects of meditation practice have helped many people. Um, at the same time, so that's like the good side of it. At the same time, all of that has happened within a society that is intensely consumerist, narcissistic, and driven by um, a reductive biomedical model of health and what the mind is. So you put those things together in the mix, and then it starts to get problematic. Um, and if you further put them in the mix with ways of thinking about the mind-brain relation that I don't think are, are adequate or correct, like the mind is the brain or the mind is what the brain does, rather than the embodied cognition view, which is the mind is something that is um, you know, a relational phenomenon of um, the individual in the environment in relation to other people, um, then you get a kind of uh, you know, consumerist, internalist, like it's all in the head, consumerist, biomedical capitalist sort of refraction or, or rendition of these ideas. And, and, you know, like mindfulness is a term that Ron Purser uses to describe that, what, what gets created. Um, and that's, you know, that's not good. That's, that I actually think is deplorable. Um, but it's not a problem about meditation as such. It's a wider, you know, problem with, you know, bigger things in our society. Um, now, the, the other element in the mix is with regard to Buddhism, and this would also be true of, of you know, Hinduism and yoga, and you might say Asian spirituality or Asian religions in general, is that um, they, beginning in the 19th century, um, modernized themselves so that they could be presented as not really being religion or as superior to Western religion, superior to Christianity or to Judaism um, or to Islam. And 
this was in a context of European colonialism, say in Burma um, or, or Ceylon, Sri Lanka, where you know you have a European occupying um, political military force that says European culture is superior, science is the product of European culture, it's superior, Christianity is the religion of science, it's superior. And these you know, Buddhists very cleverly turn the argument around. They say, well, actually, we, don't have a, you know, we Buddhists don't have a creator god. We believe in cause and effect. Um, we don't believe in an immortal soul, the no-self idea. And so we're actually more scientific. So you get this kind of version um, a, a sort of new modern version of Buddhism and then gets exported to the West, gets imported back into Asia, becomes this kind of transnational thing that scholars call modernist Buddhism. And, um, you know, in and of itself, that's like fine, all religions evolve, um, but it's a phenomenon of modernism. And so when people think, oh, Buddhism is different, this is what I call Buddhist exceptionalism, that Buddhism is different. It's really rational. It's really empirical. Um, it's not like Christianity. Um, it's not like Judaism. It's not like Islam. Um, this, I think, is a complete misconception. It's, it's, you know, any religion can modernize and emphasize rationality. You know, secular Judaism does. Um, liberal Christianity does. Uh, you know, liberal liberal Islam does. Like, this is just a phenomenon of religion in the modern world. It's, you know, we're in modernity. We have to figure out if we're going to be religious, how we're going to adapt. There's nothing special about Buddhism with regard to this. But people think Buddhism is special because of this move that the Buddhist, clever move that Buddhists made to try to present it as, oh, it's not really a religion, it's a mind science because it's based on meditation. If you look at what meditation actually is, both historically and I would say even still today, it's, um, it's not just something that involves like inner introspection in your own you know, private mental theater. It involves assimilating a rich conceptual system, learning how to deploy that in your own attention, and it involves ritual. It involves, you know, engaging in certain actions and practices according to a certain, like, conceptual roadmap, repeatedly doing it so that you internalize it and you as much sculpt and create your experience to conform to it as you do um, to discover things that were there already. So in this way, I really fundamentally disagree with, for example, um, since he's come up already, um, somebody like Sam Harris, who thinks that, um, you know, he says in one of his books, you know, Buddhism, if you get rid of the superstitious parts, is a mind science, secular Judaism isn't, Christianity isn't, and it's a mind science because you just learn to see, thing, see how things are in your own mind. Um, but you don't learn to see how things are in your own mind. You learn a conceptual system, you internalize it, you, 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 you guide your experience to conform to its norms, and you do this in a rich social setting that involves scripted ritual actions. And um, that doesn't necessarily invalidate it. It just means it's not this like rhetoric, positivist rhetoric in a way of, of it's an inner science. No, it's not an inner science. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a ritual. It's a, it's, a, it's a skill. It's a practice. Um, it's more like art, actually, than it is like science in those respects. Um, so that's that's like a whole barrage of different thoughts about sort of meditation in the in the contemporary context after like a beer and a half. <laughs> uh, so okay, so clearly you're, you're you're now we're getting right into your your most recent book here. Um, so is this why you you are not a Buddhist because you don't um, you you can't abide with. You know, sure, you're you're down with you know meditation and mindfulness, but you're not down with like some of the other parts that you consider necessary to be a Buddhist. Right, exactly. So, so the title "Why I'm Not a Buddhist" came about because people always thought that I was a Buddhist. 
you know, and by people I mean my students, my colleagues. You know, if I would go to um, uh, participate in events at Buddhist centers, people would just assume I was a Buddhist. And at a certain point, um, I decided. You know, and I, I would say, well, no, I'm not. And then people would say, oh, really? Well, why not? And so they'd want to hear. And so eventually, I, like, I decided, well, I have to actually articulate this in a, in a you know, more um, kind of careful extended, extended way. And it also came out of sort of my own personal involvement with Buddhism going back to being a kid and just trying to find my way and navigate in relationship to Buddhism. I mean, at different times in my life, I, I tried to be a Buddhist and for some reason, like, would always – or for different reasons, would always come up against various kinds of obstacles and, and you know, would, would then kind of step back. So, so I wrote the book to sort of explain that. And um, basically the idea is that for me to be a Buddhist, given who I am in the modern Western world, would mean um, either, you know, I would have to be some kind of traditional Buddhist where I would, because I wasn't raised Asian, so I'm not, you know, ethnically Asian as it were. So I would have to like become a kind of monastic Buddhist convert, a a sort of embrace a more traditional Asian form of Buddhism. And I have no objection to that as such, but it's like not the right life path for me. Um, The alternative to that is this modernist Buddhism, because that's the influential transnational form of Buddhism, like all the Buddhist centers and Buddhist teachers that you'll encounter um, if you go on, you know, Vipassana meditation retreats or you practice Zen or, you know, Tibetan Buddhism in a, in a context in the West is going to, is, it's going to all be framed by this Buddhist, modernist Buddhist way of thinking, which says, well, you know, Buddhism is really a therapy. It's really a philosophy. It's really a mind science. It's not a religion. And it's different, therefore, from other religions like, you know, Christianity, Islam, so on. And I – so that's what I call Buddhist exceptionalism. And I, I, I fundamentally think that that's – it's wrong about Buddhism and I think it's wrong about r- what religion is. So it's based on a certain misconception about what religion is and a misconception about science. So the misconception about religion is that it takes as the model of religion – Protestantism, basically, like what you believe as an individual in your own mind. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the self? It sort of looks at religion that way. And that's like historically recent and a very outlying case of what religion is, Protestantism. Most of religion is about community and tradition and finding your way in the world and making sense of, you know, death and life and birth and, and you know, trauma and, and altered states of consciousness and rituals that you know that connect you to other people so that you can behave in the world in light of these kinds of experiences that's what religion is about and of course buddhism is all about that so it's based on misconceptions of religion and then it's it's based on the idea that the relationship between religion and science is one where um you can judge your religion by whether it's more more or less scientific and that's like saying you can judge art by whether it's more or less scientific. I mean, some forms of art are in deep interaction with science and other forms aren't. Some forms of religion are in deep interaction with science and other forms aren't. And the idea that you would try to evaluate a religion um, by what you can see of it through a scientific lens just seems to me you know, not the right way to look at the relationship. So all of that is is sort of bound up in the why I'm not a Buddhist. It's because... The only way, in a nutshell, the only way to really be a, a Buddhist 
without being a traditional monastic Buddhist, is to be a modernist Buddhist. But modernist Buddhism has all of these problematic philosophical ideas embedded within it. And I can't, you know, I can't sign on to that. So is it safe to say that you disagree fundamentally with uh, Robert Wright's uh, claim? Yeah. He has a, a book title that argues exactly yeah, your yeah. book title. So I have, in my book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist, my second chapter is devoted entirely to Wright's book, to, to, to you know, why I disagree with him. Um, and it basically comes down to what I just said. I mean, his, his route is to use evolutionary psychology, which, just to make a parenthesis here, I think within the domain of cognitive psychology, uh, sorry, within the domain of cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, I think, is a defective research program. So I think on purely scientific grounds, evolutionary psychology won't fly. So we can talk about that, but just like, so he... Oh, definitely want to talk about that. He uses, <laughs> he uses evolutionary psychology to justify and legitimize a certain version of naturalistic Buddhism, as he calls it. And so I disagree with the evolutionary psychology part, and I disagree with the way that he renders the Buddhist ideas. Um, so I have a whole chapter going, you know, going into that. Now, um, this is actually really fun. Um, um, we, he interviewed me for his podcast, and, and we had a great conversation. I mean, he's fantastic. He's like, you know, um, he, 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 was, he was really engaging, super respectful. We had a really fun discussion. Um, so that's exactly like the kind of you know, person you want to disagree with, because then you, then you learn something, right? Because they're interested in why you disagree. You say what you think, they, they say what they think, you go back and forth and, and, and you learn something. So I had, a, I had a great time actually with that conversation. It was really fun. Uh, we'll make sure to put the, put the, a link to, to that podcast uh, in our show notes, because I think our, our listeners would be interested in that. But uh, it completely was not in our question, but you just you, <laughs> you, you kind of threw evolutionary psych under the bus. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts, especially uh, from someone at UBC, where there's a strong tradition, in the, at least in the psych department, um, maybe not tra- you know, quote-unquote traditional evolutionary psychology, but uh, more culture, gene, uh, you know, co-evolution approaches to a psychology. So, uh, yeah, so what are, what's your beef? Yeah, so when I say evolutionary psychology, I'm really thinking of, you know, like w- what comes out of the work of uh, Cosmides and Tubi is the sort of, you know, principle. There are many other figures, of course, but, but you know, like they're the sort of paradigm. Um, so my beef is, um, one, uh, it requires, as I was saying before, it requires a strongly modular view of the brain for which I think uh, the neuroscience evidence is against. Two, it requires that we be able to, um, to test uh, current cognitive function in relationship to what we hypothesize to be the cognitive function in the Pleistocene. I don't think that's testable. So there's a fundamental problem of testability. Um, and three, it puts all the weight on um, the idea that our the architecture of our mind was formed under the pressures of natural selection in the Pleistocene epoch. So it downplays um, culture and learning and uh, uh, you know the, the the richness of cultural evolution. So that like is in a nutshell why I why I disagree with it. So is it fair to say you you? I mean I don't think all this this covers all your points, but um, it, uh, that you disagree with like one approach to you know evolutionary uh, approaches to human behavior because yeah. I think a lot of psychologists think you know t- uh, cu- uh, tubing cosmies are the end and the only word on, on evolutionary, but of course there are other approaches. Right. So if if yeah no if evolutionary psychology just means we have to understand the human mind in light of biological and cultural evolution, 
um, then of course I agree. I mean, biological and cultural evolution um, is you know a fundamental frame of reference for understanding understanding the functioning of the human mind. But you know, but but you know, thinkers as different as William James and Sigmund Freud and Jean Piaget and J.J. Gibson, I mean, they would all agree with that. So, of course, I don't disagree with that. It's more the specific idea that the mind, the human mind, is organized into special purpose mechanisms or modules that were selected for as a result of environmental and cognitive pressures in the Pleistocene. And so our heads contain, as you know, Cosmides and Tubies put it, a Stone Age mind. That's what I fundamentally disagree with. And I disagree with that because I think the neuroscience evidence doesn't support it, and I don't think it's actually testable. Um, I think that it requires you to uh, be able to um, have access to, um, to data about the Pleistocene and relate it to now that I don't actually, I, I don't really think is, is, uh, is doable. Um, so, so, so that, yeah. So now if you mean, ev- if evolutionary psychology means something more like gene culture coevolution, that, yeah, I mean, that's fine. Um, but I don't think that's really what the term generally designates, you know, among, um, people who want it to, you know, signal a particular research program. Okay, so I'm seeing we're running out of time, um, but I, we do have a, a, at least a, a couple more questions, and I, I want to go back to, to to some Buddhism stuff. And you all, you know, jump in there if there's anything that you want to ask. Um, but uh, so, actually, one of our most popular episodes, uh, I think it aired about a year ago, um, was uh, it was like I, I think it was a bit of a playful episode um, where it was called "Against Mindfulness," and. The idea of the episode was like, what could we, you know, playing devil's advocate, what evidence or what could we, how could we critique mindfulness, at least the, at least the modern scientific study of mindfulness? I, I don't mean more, uh, you know, older traditions. I mean, like stuff that's been happening in the past 20, 20 plus years. Um, and to summarize that episode, uh, you know, we suggested that, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's, uh, there's a there are a lot of weaknesses in, in, in the study of mindfulness, you know, as done by scientists. So whether it be the measure of mindfulness doesn't seem to even capture the construct. It seems to relate to other, other things. Um, you know, evidence suggesting that, you know, the practice of mindfulness in terms of therapeutic contexts, um, the evidence is pretty mixed. Uh, in, it, it seems to be the best we can say is that it's, you know, no better than other, other, uh, approaches. Um, you know, uh, the, the difficulty of studying mindfulness in, in practice because of a deep confound, uh, the confound of, of motivation, right? So if people are, they, they know they're going to be studied because, you know, uh, uh, they're in this mindfulness retreat, let's say, and they're motivated to show the mindfulness is good because they believe it personally, well, they're going in way more motivated than someone who's not in that treatment group. And then there's, of course, the stuff that's our bread and butter in our podcast, which is the replication crisis stuff. So, you know, People in every field of psychology have been, we've been abusing, you know, uh, uh, you know, are using questionable research practices, you know, quote unquote, p-hacking, uh, selective reporting, etc. So we, you know, that was our devil, devil's advocate take. Um, but, uh, and it maybe wasn't a fair take because we didn't also talk about the positives. Um, but I wonder uh, what your take is on, again, not the, 
the let's say the the religion of you know, Buddhism or uh, you know the more the, the the theory around contemplative studies, but the science of it. What what is your assessment of of, of that field? Right, right. Well, I basically agree with everything you just said. <laughs> so um, I think you know. Um, actually, let me preface that by saying that um, personally, what I'm really interested in, and this is actually what Francisco Varela was interested in, is not the study of contemplative practices per se. In other words, not looking at um, the effects that they have on the brain and behavior or whether they are um, you know, beneficial in one or another kind of clinical intervention. Um, the reason that he and, and, and me and, and others like uh, Kalina Kristoff in our department here at UBC have been interested is to see whether by looking at contemplative practice as a kind of skill, we might be able to have both in the form of neural data and in the form of self-report data, richer data for understanding basic things about cognitive function. You know, attention, awareness, interoception. Um, do these practices? So, for example, in a study I was involved with with Kalina Kristoff that was published a few years back, um, the first author was Melissa Emilil. Um, we looked at very long-term experienced practitioners of um, Vipassana insight mindfulness meditation with the idea that because they practice, as, as, because as part of their practice, they strive to quiet the mind and notice immediately when a thought first starts to form and arise, that they would very likely be able to report when they feel a thought first arising, probably earlier or quicker than subjects who haven't engaged in this kind of practice. And if we had those reports, we could look at the antecedent neural activity. So we could, we could have an earlier window into the formation of spontaneous thoughts in, in the um, associated brain activity. And so what we found in that study is um, indeed that there are, you know, hippocampal, parahippocampal areas involved in, you know, in memory um, that are, that are that are that are becoming activated in the moments immediately before someone re- starts to report a thought, and we also had them um, categorize it: is it you know a verbal thought? Is it is it an emotional thought? An imagistic thought? I don't remember the exact categories, but they that they had to categorize it. And we had certain kind of controls as well, um, both controls for them, and then also um, looking at uh, looking at other subjects. So there, we weren't interested in you know mindfulness. Is it is it good for you, as it were? We were interested in how could we use this kind of cognitive practice, let's say, to interrogate or to investigate very basic aspects of um, spontaneous cognition um, and and uh, the, the sort of flow of flow of the mind. So um, there, I think there are very few studies, but it's a very rich area. So if you go into it with that research agenda, I think there's actually some very interesting things that that are still waiting to be done. So that's just kind of to say like how I would I would want to frame the interest of that research for me. It's not like the only way to do it, but that's like the interest for me. So then in relationship to what you said 
about you know mindfulness research more generally. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I, I think that um, you know there's a bias towards uh, reporting positive results. There's an issue about motivation. Um, all of these mindfulness scales where people are you know self-reporting you know dispositional trait mindfulness. I mean, I'm very suspicious of those kinds of self-report measures. Um, and, and, and their usefulness in relationship, at least to what mindfulness means more traditionally. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's entirely right. There, there are some good studies. It's like, you know, there are a few, um, but the hype around it is completely out of proportion to what the studies merit. There's, there's no question about that in my mind. Yeah. Right. Mickey, do we want to go to our controversial final question? So the controversial question is this. And I want you to take a moment to think about okay. it because uh, there there is a right answer. Um, which is better, Toronto or Vancouver? Oh, now that's a very interesting question. Um, so let me let me put it this way: I really love being in Vancouver. The move came at a really good time. Um, I had lived in Toronto straight for seventeen years. Um, and I had lived there a lot before. Like I've lived in Toronto more than any other place in my life. So if I'm from anywhere, I consider myself to be from Toronto, even though I wasn't born there. But I was there as a little kid, and then, then again, you know, for, for grad school, and then again as a professor. Now I've been in Vancouver uh, going on seven years, I guess. Um, there's no question in my mind if I were in my 20s, like my 20-year-old tw- my self would way prefer Toronto. Um, but I had lived in Toronto for such a long period of time that I was kind of getting tired of it. And specifically what I was getting tired of was there's no way to beat around the bush, the ugliness. A former colleague of mine at the University of Toronto said there's nowhere you can stand in Toronto and not see something really dreadfully ugly. And it's sadly true. And there are a lot of things I love about Toronto. Um, and... You know, I moved back to Toronto from the United States because I wanted to raise my kids there. Like I, I was a professor at Boston University and moved to York University before, you know, I was at U of T. Um, and that was because I, you know, my kids were little and I didn't want to raise them in the United States. Um, I, I, you know, I have a, a have my, my older son is, um, he's uh, half African-American and I just didn't want to raise him in, in the United States in that you know, not that Canada doesn't have problems. Of course it does. But I just like, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, raise him in that. And um, I really wanted to be in Canada. And I loved being in Toronto for many years. But I have to say right now, I really, I really like BC. I really like Vancouver. But at the same time, my life is this little bubble at UBC. We live on the campus. UBC is this little like space colony of, you know, like the beach, the forest, you know, the university buildings. And I kind of just live in that little zone. And, you know, we go downtown every now and then, but I don't relate to Vancouver in the way that I related to Toronto. Like, we lived at Danforth and Pape in Toronto, and, you know, it was just like ride the subway to U of T and be right there, and it was very urban. And when we moved out here, we sort of thought, well, it doesn't really make sense to try to do that in Vancouver because, like, that's not the best of Vancouver. Like, we should live close to the forest and the beach. And so I love that. You know, it's worked out really well for me. So I'm, 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 as you can tell, I'm not directly answering your question. I'm kind of beating, beating, you know, hedging it. Well, fair enough. I think that, I think that's a, that's a very diplomatic answer. Evan, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for taking uh, the time to talk with us today. Uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you for thank being here. Thank you very much. It was great fun. And I really appreciate you guys inviting me. Thanks, Evan. You'll have to come back and we will drink whiskey. <laughs>